Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oxford's old city walls used to run immediately to the south of Henrietta Maria's old Civil War hangout, Merton College. One morning in April 1645, a military man stood against that wall, ripped open his shirt, cried, God save the king, and was shot. There's a footpath there now, and it's a nice part of the world, but if you happen to go walking there, take a friend. Because the soul of the victim, Francis Windybank, is still racked with a sense of injustice, and you might just be one of those who meets his shade, returning to tell anyone who will listen of his eternal search for justice. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 397 in Assurance of Victory. Colonel Francis Windebank was the governor of Bletchington Park, just outside Oxford. Just a few days before his execution, Francis had organised a bit of a do for his young wife to raise the spirits of the household and all that sort of thing. The ball never took place though because outside there came a rough demand, a regiment of horse commanded by one rough Oliver Cromwell had arrived and demanded Bletchington surrender. Gone out with your hands up, your house is surrounded, that sort of thing. Panicked at this unwelcome surprise, unprepared, worried at the presence of his guests, Francis did what he thought the only decent, chivalrous thing to do and surrendered to save everybody's lives. He was very confident as he returned to Oxford that his king would give him his approval, because clearly, father of his people, 
he would fully agree that saving loyal lives was his most important responsibility. Well done, Francis. He was in for a bit of a shock, as it happens. He had miscalculated. Quite badly, actually. You don't surrender at first ask and expect to keep your life, essentially. The bunny that was Charles was not a happy one. Sent him to a court-martial. The court-martial took just three hours to order him shot, and shot he was. The injustice of it all still haunts him, and he returns frequently to let people know about it. You only see half the lad, apparently, because he's actually at the old ground level of the library, so you might see him on his knees, and you might see him on his knees in the current library too. Maybe sometimes you might see him chatting at a ghostly social with Archbishop Lord, whose body was buried at St John's College and who still walks the same library, though chatting is probably the wrong word because I don't think Lord's head made it all the way to Oxford, just his body. Last time then we heard essentially about the creation of the new model army and the extraordinary circumstances around it, little short of a second revolution the assertion of the power of the commons, the eclipse of the lords, the rise of party and faction, and a defeat for the currently ruling party of the Presbyterian Peace Group. We heard then about the next step in Montrose's wild campaign in Scotland, and we're going to hear more about that extraordinary dance that Montrose led the irate, increasingly incredulously irritated Covenanters through a number of glens that the gayest of Robin Hoods could only wonder at. And we're also then going to hear about a climactic clash of arms on the low hills in England outside Marston Trussell. Quite apart from all the fuss and bother about the creation of the new model, the first half of 1645 contained, in summary, an awful lot of rushing about. You might think that the creation of a new professional army would put the wind right up the king and fill him with fear, but you would be wrong to so conclude. In fact, Charles and his council watched the infighting and factionalism with what might be described as unseemly glee, not just because the divisions of your enemy is always fun, but because this seemed like an opportunity now. The new model from the start was devoid of foot soldiers, who had either gone home, were serving with the rump of one of the old armies, or were worrying about whether they'd get a job with the new model or not. So, not only were all the officers being appointed to new positions or removed, there was recruitment and impressment on a vast scale of raw recruits. One of the new colonels of the foot, incidentally, was a name to be remembered, one Thomas Rainsborough, ex-naval officer, ex of Fairfax's command at Hull and ex of Cromwell's Eastern Association Army at Crowland. Now the peers had tried but failed to reject this independent in their fight against Fairfax. Rainsborough personally then pressed almost 1,500 men, returning to the Treasury more than half of the money allocated to him for the purpose. A man committed to the cause was Thomas Rainsborough, so he's a man to watch out for, mark my words, and don't say I didn't warn you. Charles's eyes were smiling because he'd actually had a great second half to 1644, as we'd heard, when he personally stuck it in the back of the net with a tremendous win at Lostwithiel, there was Cropperdy and Newbury, and there was all Montrose's news. And I personally do not believe that when he heard about Argyle's humiliation at Inverlochy in February 1645, Charles did not do a backflip with double sulco spin and a final leg lift in the privacy of his own home. A difficult man to like was Lemon Sucker Archie, 
and he'd really made Charles suck on the lemon of political humiliation. So, Solco on, Charlie boy, Solco on. The Oxford Parliament was now gone too, and that was also good news. Charles was sick of what he now called his mongrel parliament. It kept badgering him to make peace. So in March, with effusive thanks, of course, he told it to sling its hook. It is kind of interesting that Charles failed to work effectively with Parliament even when he had one that was absolutely in his pocket. But, 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 eyes around the Royal Council table were not smiling because there was all manner of political infighting going on. Charles had mixed things up, managerially speaking. He'd now created a new command in the West, based at Brizzle under the Prince of Wales. But the practical impact of this was to sideline Hyde and the moderate royal constitutionalists because they went with the Prince of Wales and away from Charles's ear. And the always inevitable failure of the negotiations at Uxbridge, which Hyde had very much supported, meant that finally, at last and fatally, of his civilian quarters, Hyde and his moderates were out of favour. To be replaced by, wait for it, gorgeous George Digby the Glam, with his rivers of charm, optimism, ambition and dangerous stupidity. It is now George's warm, wet lips that are pressed close to the royal lug. Prince Rupert hated him, I mean really hated him, as much as Rufus hated Anselm. And you know what? George hated Roops right back. It could well be that much of the advice Charles received in 1645 was motivated not by truth, light and the impartial justice of the question, but by alpha male hormones. Speaking as a male somewhere around Delta or Epsilon, alpha males and their bottoms do have a lot to answer for. Anyway, moving on. Both King and Parliament failed to really develop a coherent strategy for 1645 and focus instead on jack chair rearranging. Rupert was hot for the north to cause trouble for Fairfax, who was quietly and methodically trying to reduce Yorkshire to obedience. That's never easy. Let's get that baby back on board, said Roops. Raise a new army in North Wales, make sure we hold on to Chester at very least. The strategy took a bit of a beating, when parliamentary forces captured Shrewsbury, effectively blocking the route to Chester. Despite the fall of Shrewsbury, though, Rupert was tireless in Wales, with new commanders Morris and Gerard recruiting, inspecting garrisons. Mid-Wales was going, undergoing something of a wobble with a resurgence of support for Parliament, so it wasn't always easy. Rupert also met for the first time a lot of clubmen around Hereford. This is not the time to discuss clubmen. We'll do that next time, I think. But all over the West and Southwest, a lot of local people were starting to say, look, enough, take your stinking war away from our hearth and home, a plague on both of your houses. I am eliding quite a lot of information there, but essentially, Chester stays royalist, and although royalist fortunes are far from revived, there is now a cavalry contingent under the command of the marvellously named Marmaduke Langdale. It is called the Northern Horse, swept up from the remnants of horse all over Yorkshire, on which the king might like to call, if he so desired. It falls probably under George Monk's famous name for royalist cavalry as a rabble of gentility, but it was substantial, 30 regiments, so even if under strength, several thousand men. And Langdale had some dash. In March, he swept up with the northern horse to Pontefract, drove off John Lambert from the siege, inflicting a substantial defeat on the lad. 
They were ill-disciplined for sure, but the northern horse were effective and aggressive. Meanwhile, George Goring's star was in the ascendant as the one royalist commander who'd come away with an enhanced reputation from the disaster at Marston Moor, an aggressive and talented cavalry commander, the most dexterous in any sudden emergency I have ever seen, said a fan. Presentness of his mind and vivacity in a sudden attempt, though never so full of danger, said Clarendon. So that's good news for Charles then, though the modern judgment of Ronald Hutton might have been handy. Goring was something of a lover of booze, frequently failed to control the behaviour of his men leading to atrocities and the locals, and he was unreliable. His qualities add up to a superficial brilliance. He never rose above short-term tactical ingenuity, says Ronald. Also Rupert hated him, saw him as a rival, so there's that. To be fair, there is a lot of toing and froing from March to June 1645, which I should maybe go into, but I'm not going to. The message is basically one of dysfunction on the royalist side. The king, surrounded by a war council for whom the most compelling war was in council, not the field where it mattered. Digby hated the swordsmen, especially Rupert and Langdale. Rupert wanted Goring out of the way. He detested Digby and despised the religious lunas in the new model army, the new noddle army, he called it. So there they are, arguing away like ferrets in a sack about what to do. To be fair, this committee of both kingdoms was a bit the same, trying to micromanage everything. They had a core strategy, which was probably not achievable as matters stood anyway. It was to take the very well-defended Oxford with an, as yet, under-resourced Midlands army. They failed to concentrate on even that, though. They salami-sliced the newly forming new model, sending bits all over the place. Fairfax was sent to a trip to Taunton, to shore up the last outpost in the West, an objective of largely symbolic value at that point. Cromwell was sent to Ely for a while, also in a panic, and then back to Oxford, where he pooped Windebank's party, as we've already heard. Now this just wasn't at all the idea that the new model had been formed under. The idea had been for an independently run professional army. And in early May, into the mix, comes news from the Battle of Aldine and the Great Montrose, which effectively removed the Scots from Parliament's side in the Midlands. So, John Urry, the soldier of fortune, the traitor who deserted Hamden and shopped him to the king, was now fighting for his third boss, the Covenanters. Urry was sent by the Covenanter Council in Edinburgh to trap Montrose in the Highlands by destroying one of the few allies Montrose had left, in the Gordon Lands, northeast Scotland. So, with an army of regular troops facing him now and an experienced commander, Montrose and McCullough were badly under strength. Again! Now Montrose just had 1,500 men left against 4,000 regular Covenanter troops hurrying to meet them. Off, off. But at Aldine, Montrose set a trap outflanked the Covenanters, deployed the Gordon cavalry that had joined him at a key moment, and it was a bloodbath. No quarter was given. The Covenanter clan Mackenzie refused to give up the banner of their clan, and for them pride came before a highland sword in the head. Almost half the Covenanters died in the brutal pursuit. So that is wildly improbable victory number four for Montrose. We've had Tippermuir, Aberdeen, Inverlochy, Aldine. Four victories against overwhelming odds, and this time it wasn't McCullough's fearsome Highland charge that had won. It was clever tactics 
against the regular troops. The great Montrose. Genius. And yet still the Lowland Scots did not come to the royal banner. He was fighting an enemy that had bound its people to it by a mutual commitment to a covenant made community by community between them and their God and their view of an ideal king. So once more, Montrose and McCullough were forced to escape into the hills. But their achievements did help the king in England. Leven had been asked to bring the Scots south to link up with Fairfax, help the war effort. Rather delightfully, Leven pretended to march south, but went via the capital of Westmoreland, which is categorically not south. What it is, is close to the Scottish border, because Leven had to now send nine regiments home and would not leave Scotland far behind while Montrose was on the rampage. The long and short is that in June 1645, Fairfax was returning to Oxford. Rupert now saw an opportunity to draw Fairfax away from Oxford while he was still weak, away from potential source of reinforcements. As Fairfax chased him, Hunter chasing the limping stag, it would give time for Goring to return with his cavalry from Taunton and a new 3,000-strong Welsh force to reach Rupert too. Then, powerful and reinvigorated, Rupert would turn, ha-ha, and give the new niddle the required kicking with equal or superior numbers. So, urgent orders were duly sent to Goring. Goring, it has to be said, was drunk for days on end and had become obsessed with the idea of taking Taunton, so he sent a note back saying, sure, I'll be there in a couple of days. Maybe. Charles and Rupert didn't pick that up at this point, but they now laid out the lure the lure to pull Fairfax away towards his doom. That lure bore the fair name of Leicester, ladies and gentlemen. And what greater prize could there be? Leicester, after all, was the centre of world culture, a glittering cosmopolis of art and virtue. Well, not really. In fact, it was chosen as a soft target. Obviously, the Lord Lieutenant was Lord Loughborough, and he said Leicester was a sitting duck, had given him some artillery, and he could take it with the help of his mum and his sausage dog, Bernard. It was poorly defended, poorly fortified, reassuringly far away from Oxford and any relief force. So, angry wind time was here to Leicester. To methodically invest the city with siege fortifications, done. To then demanding its surrender on the 30th of May in full confidence, given it had not a snowball's chance in a warm place of holding out. The answer, disconcertingly, was no. Rupert and Charles were miffed. They ordered the attack. The 500 defenders of Leicester fought off 12,000 royalists for hours and there was fierce street-to-street fighting. Rupert and Charles were doubly miffed. Fine royalist soldiers were dying to take this rat hole once called Rat-Eye. When it finally did fall, Leicester felt the full fury of a sack and people died. It is one of the few occasions where accusations of rape were levelled, actually and 140 cartloads of loot were removed. A witness would appear at Charles's trial to tell the whole tale. Well, it worked. On the 5th of June, Fairfax left the Oxford area and he came north, following the lure. However, there was no sign of Goring, nor the Welsh levies yet at Leicester. Now, Rupert had options here. He could faint threatened to move eastwards towards Rockingham and Newark, delay, draw Fairfax on, give Goring and the Welsh more time. Enter Digby. 
No way we can leave the fair ladies of Oxford undefended. It's time to turn, goddammit, and defeat the new novel, says he. Well, not exactly those words, it has to be said. Rupert knew that the siege of Oxford had been raised, but he was poorly informed about Fairfax's position and numbers. He did not know, for example, that he faced an army of 13,500 as against his own 10,000. He was lucky he had that many, actually. Langdale's northern horse had been complaining bitterly about being so far from home and they wanted to leave. And in fact, they did leave and had to be coaxed back. No matter. The decision was made. Digby had won the day. They would do the best they could with the troops they had. Meanwhile, the Committee of Both Kingdoms had finally seen sense. On the 9th of June, it told Fairfax that they would stop sending orders. He should shadow the king, but do as he chose. He had full operational authority. Not before time, it has to be said. So, Fairfax promptly appointed Cromwell as his Lieutenant General of the Horse, in defiance of the self-denying ordinance, and on the 12th of June, Cromwell and his troopers rode into the Roundhead camp. Seeing him arrive, the soldiers of the new model rushed over to sea. There was great excitement, cheers. Everyone felt a little bit better. The soldiers of the new model adored Cromwell. He understood them, he cared for them, he shared their values, he knew what he was doing. What's not to like? So, the scene was set for the Battle of Naseby. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The intelligence of both commanders seems to have differed, maybe because we're in an area held by Parliament. So the Royalists found it very hard to find little helpers. Where was Goring, the blithering idiot? Why didn't he write? Well, meanwhile, Fairfax had been riding out in the evening looking for the enemy himself and his chief scout, John Tarrant, came to him with news. He'd intercepted letters from Goring. Those letters made it clear that he was still noodling around in Somerset, wouldn't be at the party, wouldn't be bringing a bottle, which could be empty anyway. Who finished that? Charles and Rupert were therefore unaware of this, nor were they aware just how close the two armies were. And so it was that Charles was out hunting when the news came in. Hang on, there's an army about six miles away from us. Charles stopped hunting venison and called a council on the night of the 14th of June to decide whether they should instead hunt rebels, not deer. It was a tense meeting, I think it's fair to say. Rupert might have been a hot-blooded commander. He might have been an aggressive commander. He might not know the numbers very clearly. He thought their lot was an army of noddles, old or new but he still didn't like the odds. His advice was to withdraw to Leicester and northwards, find those 3,000 Welsh levies, give glugging George Goring a chance to get away from Taunton, and fight only when they were bound to win. But it was Digby's advice that won the day, and probably Charles's sense of honour not to walk away from a fight with a bunch of rebels. Edward Walker was there, and he was on Rupert's side, and he wrote, It being our unhappiness, that the faction of the court, whereof the most powerful were Lord Digby and Mr John Ashburnham, and that of the army 
ever opposed and were jealous of each other. I'm now going to say a few words about the landscape and stuff, and here I can reveal a few personal details, which I'm sure will give you time to go make a nice cup of tea while the adverts are on sort of thing. The thing is, I've never really spent much time doing battlefield walking, though Frank did take me round seven of the Portuguese Peninsula War battlefield sites, which was tremendous. But don't normally do that. But it just so happens that I have a mate, I know, a mate who lives near Naseby, for that is sort of where we are now, although at this precise point in time, Charles is on a hill near East Farnham. Anyway, I was telling you I had a mate. His name is Pat, and he has a mate called Dan, and Dan knows pretty much everything there is to know about the battle. So we walked together across the battlefields with Pat and Charlotte and with Dan, and a really irritated dog who kept asking, why were we stopping to chat rather than getting on with the walk? It's a great battlefield to go to, actually. I can heartily recommend it. There are far five or six points marked with a platform and a little English flag. You do need a car, probably, and there's a limit to how much of the land you can get onto, given that the 18th century enclosures remove the traditional right of people to walk their own country. But it is really fun, especially if you have a Dan with you. I have stolen his knowledge freely. Where I get it wrong, it's all his fault. Where I get it wrong, it's because I have failed to listen. A couple of words about the landscape then, as the armies move towards each other in the early morning of the 15th of June. Remember, we are close to the longest day of the year, so although Fairfax was on the move from 3am, which would have been dark, most of this would be in the daylight. The countryside is very different to the pictures I put on the interweb or what you'll see if you go and look at it, for two reasons really, or two main reasons. In 1645, it has as yet unenclosed, it is all massive open fields. There is one significant hedge. This is the parish boundary hedge called Solby's Hedge from the name of the next door parish. This one piece of enclosed land is therefore stock and it's got good solid stock hedges. Oakes Dragoons will use that hedge. Generally though this is good land for cavalry. Some grass some other corn. We are in an area of lowland, but around there there is upland, a land of low hills of red boulder clay, heavy, which can get very soggy and heavy. These low hills do then provide a bit of enclosed land, a bit of cover, but finally, in the 17th century, wildlife was nowhere near as beaten up and beaten down as it is today. Nowadays, the landscape is clean, neat, almost surgical. Back then, there's furs or gorse or whin, all over the place. See end of podcast. It's untidy. Things can live there. There are a couple of marked places on the battlefield where Charles and Rupert could see in the morning over from the Clipston area eastwards towards where the Parliamentary Army was. You get a great view from there over the valley. Rupert had by now found the new noddle. They must move westwards to meet them. Across the valley there is another platform, another little flag. Fairfax's lookout it's called and again you can see loads from there. And Fairfax could see the Royal Army approaching. And as Dan and indeed the placard pointed out from up where he was, Fairfax knew full well that he had an impossibly strong position, that no one was stupid enough to try and attack him up there. Well, possibly Digby, obviously, but not Rupert. And so Fairfax ordered the army to move down the hills towards them, towards Fenny Hill and Mill Hill, into the valley. 
because they wanted a battle. This hit me strangely hard. I was assumed he just took up the best possible defensive place and prayed and hoped that they killed themselves on your musket fire. But actually, you did invite death. You wanted a fight. Silly of me, obviously. Both armies had now sort of reoriented, so they ended on a north-to-south axis with Naseby and its beautiful ironstone church behind Fairfax to the south and Sibatoff to the north behind Rupert and Charles. Fairfax's manoeuvre may have also been designed to make sure the Royalists had the smoke of gunfire in their faces. Could be that Cromwell saw that it would force Langdale's northern horse to attack from Dust Hill. As per my comment about messy countryside, in front of Mill Hill lay an area of broken ground, a rabbit warren, an area of gorse furs win. I'm not going to lie to you folks, there's a lot of talk about furs in the Naysbury records. This is what I call gorse, I think. It is a lovely plant with yellow flowers, blooms all year round, I'm told. Dartford warblers love it. But if you want to get through it, you learn to roundly detest it. Tough, spiky. I have a word of the week to say at the end of the episode about first gauze and win. Something to look forward to to relax once the fighting is done and the blood has stopped choking the ground. So the armies were in sight of each other from about eight o'clock in the morning and laid themselves out neat and tidy like. The new model was arranged along the low hills and Fairfax had them step back about 100 yards behind the brow of the hill to confuse the enemy, I am told, and make sure his new troops didn't get scared looking at the Royalists, though if they were good at counting, they might well have realised, as Rupert now began to, that Fairfax had a significant advantage. The numbers vary. I'm going with Nick Lipscomb's 10,000 Royalists, 13,500 Parliamentarians, but either way, a significant advantage. That morning, Cromwell's buddy from Ely, Henry Ireton, was promoted Commissary General of the Horse, and he was given command of the cavalry's left wing. This had been a bit of a wheeze, because as an independent, Fairfax thought the Lords would have nixed this appointment good and proper, but they had not managed to do so, as they had not managed to do so, so often. Ireton then would be facing the might of Rupert's cavalry from the Royalist right, but he did have an ace in the hole which was that area of enclosed land I talked about and the parish hedge, as mentioned, Solby's hedge. Now, Cromwell saw an opportunity in that hedge, so he sent Colonel Oakey and his regiment of dragoons right up there along the hedge line. They could fire on Rupert's men from the side as and when they charged at Ireton, and indeed they could hit them from just where they were standing around. Now look, good people, we have been there. There's a viewing platform by Solby's Hedge, and it is close, close, close to the Royalists. And the Oaky men were taking pot shots at them, and there was naff all Rupert could do about him, the hedge was so thick. They will make a difference, the Oaky men. Not now, really, but a bit later. I am sure Oaky Man is a reference to some 60s or 70s comedy programme, thinking sort of Derek and Clive, can't quite remember. If you can, let me know. Still... Rupert versus Ireton? You'd pick Rupert, wouldn't you? Here, the battle could be won for Charles. In the centre, then, the royalist foot was commanded by Jacob Astley, still presumably praying, O Lord, thou knowest how busy I must be this day. If I forget thee, do not thou forget me. He would face Philip Skippen, and so we have two fully experienced, hardened, 
officers facing each other now. However, this is another place where the battle could be won for the king. They had smaller numbers, but this was an experienced, hardened royal infantry, the best the king had. As Dan was clear to make the point, Skippen's men were untried, many pressed men amongst them. So on my my morale beats your numbers thing, they could run like rabbits. Run, rabbit, run. On the royalists left then, with a flamboyant and without doubt, talentedly aggressive northern horse under Marmaduke Langdale. But they faced a toughie. Because of all that furs, the baggy bottom that led to Mill Hill, where was placed their other big problem, Cromwell and his Ironsides. The Ironsides were the best cavalry of the war. Cromwell was the best cavalry commander. Also, the Ironsides had a numerical advantage. This is where the battle could be won too. And Cromwell, ever energised by simple, unambiguous action, he was feeling good. I could not, riding alone about my business, but smile out to God in praises, in assurance of victory. Because God would, by things that are not, bring to naught things that were. Like the first half of that quite complicated second half, needs a gloss, really. Anyway, not quite sure what you were talking about. Anyway, he's feeling good. That's the point. Fairfax, meanwhile, was everywhere. Generally speaking, Fairfax was a quiet sort of chap, and he suffered horribly from gallstones. But the challenge of battle animated him too, and he inspired his men. Sir, have you seen him, and how his spirit was raised? It would have made an impression on you, never to be obliterated. All the reports say that he turned up at all parts of the battle, that he had the talent of remaining calm under pressure and making sound tactical decisions. The commons had chosen their commander well. As we will see, Charles was equally committed, commanding the reserve at the rear, but with his rather more formal style. Rupert was the inspiring commander he always was, and around ten o'clock, after everyone had said their prayers, it was he that characteristically and metaphorically, I have to say, muttered, Oh, come on, let's get on with this, and launched his cavalry at Ireton's heart. The advance was then general across the line. There were to be no secret plans and clever tricks. Everyone agreed that of artillery there was little, and what little there was did not make a hapeth of difference to man or beast. I don't want to be rude to artillery, but you know what I'm saying. Colonel Oakey's men put fire from the hedges on Rupert's men. Our Henry Slingsby was there. You might remember him, Conservative Yorkshire MP who wanted reform, but not that much and so forth for the king. He remembers the fire from the Oakey men, but it did not slow down Rupert's advance, which, however, was not the most swashbuckling affair, or at least, when quite close, both horse reformed, got themselves ready, dressed themselves, as Dan described it making sure their formation was tight, packed and would hit the hardest possible. Rupert made a better job of it, as you'd expect, and when Rupert did charge, Ireton's men were slightly split. Half did better than the other half, but this was nonetheless a protracted, hard-fought fight. Meanwhile, Astley was coming forward over the mile and a half up the hill towards Skippen's infantry, and soon Astley was indeed having the best of it. They were also supported by small contingents of horse. This seemed to make a difference too. So, a royalist recalled, The foot on either side hardly saw each other until they were within carbine shot. 
and so only made one volley, ours falling in with sword and butt-end of the musket, and denotable execution. So much I saw their colours fall, and their foot in great disorder. Skippen's front line had been driven in and was starting to be rolled up. Skippen himself was dangerously wounded by a shot in the side. Seeing the danger, Fairfax was there and asked him to leave the field, but a soldier remembered. The old man answered, he would not stir so long as a man could stand. Skippen is 45, by the way. Old, climby. Ireton may well have seen what was happening over there and peeled off part of his horse to attack the royalist foot from the side to try and restore the balance. This was probably a bad decision, distracting him from the task in hand. Rupert got the upper hand, and much of Ireton's horse now broke and legged it, four-legged style. Ireton himself was speared by a pike, slashed with a halberd in the face, and captured. Rupert's horse pursued the fleeing parliamentarian cavalry, tails high, and then turned and attacked the baggage train, which actually they found a hard nut to crack, since it was very well defended. So, it was getting on now, so Rupert started the long ride back to Dust Hill and the King to see what was going on, though without the vast majority of his horse, who were still messing around with the baggage train. This brings us to the East Wing, where Langdale's northern horse were coming on. Cromwell didn't wait for them to arrive, he used the slope to help his charge, and the two lines met. Here's Slingsby again. After they were close joined, they stood a pretty while and neither seemed to yield, till more came up to their flanks and put them to rout, and wheeling to our right, took them in disorder and so presently made our horse run. It was force of numbers that probably made the difference here. In fighting experiences, although the Ironsides, probably the best horse, the Northern horse, were pretty well matched too, but Cromwell used his numbers. He ordered second and third lines to attack, and it was this that forced Langdale's troop to run. The northern horse had wanted to go home, and now they had their wish. On the left wing, Oakey's dragoons played a further part now. The enterprising Colonel Oakey moved from the hedgerow to try and help Skippen's struggling foot with some covering fire, Rupert had deployed some royalist musket men, and they now specifically tried to prevent this, but as they engaged the Oakey men, it meant Ireton's cavalrymen, who had peeled off initially and were now still there, they were now free to help their infantry, and they counterattacked Astley's foot. In the confused counterattack, Ireton was then recaptured. Skippen now called in his reserve, commanded by Thomas Rainsborough, Thomas Pride, Robert Hammond. The second and third lines stopped the first moving backwards. Slowly, slowly, the tide began to turn again. At which point we return to the Ironsides and Cromwell's legendary ability to hold them in check. Fairfax, literally everywhere by the looks of things, though probably figuratively would be better considering the space-time continuum, has now rocked up from Skippen's infantry crisis. He's lost his helmet by now, but he rushes up to his friend in the melee and tells him to reform, to order part of his horse to make sure Langdale keeps running till he gets back to the Dales, but to reform the remaining half, come with him and charge Astley's infantry in the centre. All right, boss, says Cromwell, though probably God made an appearance somewhere. Refusing to pause to put a helmet back on, Fairfax leads the way. God, this is exciting, isn't it? 
Rupert by now has appeared back at the king's side on Dust Hill, bringing with him some of his horse, dribbling back from the baggage train, slowly trying to reform. But what he sees appalls him. Langdale is gone. Astley is now exposed in the centre from both left and from right. On the right, Oakey's dragoons have dispatched Rupert's muskets, loaded up on their cobs, ponies, whatevs, and have charged from their hedgerows. And all the way from the other wing, here comes Cromwell with a contingent of his horse across the fields. Here comes Fairfax, bareheaded, wild-eyed, possibly worrying about his gallstones. Astley's men, fine though they are, cannot hold against this. They're beginning to break, flinging down their weapons, crying for quarter. This is the time. This is the time to launch the Royal Reserve, the lifeguard, to sort this mess out and save his crown. Fairfax, though, had the presence of mind to stop his headlong helter-skelter charge, reform his lines of horse and start an orderly advance up the hill. On Dust Hill, Rupert and the King are ready to play their last card. Clarendon, years later in his orifice, reconstructing the scene from letters and records he'd patiently brought together, described what happened. The King's reserve of horse were even ready to charge when on a sudden such a panic fear seized upon them that they all ran a quarter of a mile without stopping. We've talked about the panic fear that robs regiments of their resolve, and here it is. In this case, facing an orderly phalanx with an army folding into chaos, it seems less like panic, more like thoroughly sensible sense of self-preservation. Charles, though, was appalled, shamed, and never short of courage, spurred his horse to attack anyway, hoping to shame his reserve into one last effort. What happens next is a big what-if. The Earl of Canworth, who rode next to him, suddenly laid his hand on the bridle of the king's horse and, swearing two or three full-mouthed Scots oaths, said, Will you go on to your death in an instant? Canworth turned the king's horse with the bridle, forced it to follow the army streaming from the field to find safety. What if? Now look, I know what ifs are terribly tiresome and I avoid them like the plague, but look, what if? I think Dan Dan the battlefield man may have raised this point, could be wrong, but what if Charles had charged? What if Charles had had his block knocked off? And that the young Prinny, Wales of that ilk, had become king, Okay. He's only 15, he's not spent all those years in exile and being bullied by Covenanters, and he will be bullied by Covenanters, by the way, those guys are as hard as nails. So maybe he would not have developed yet his famous flexibility of later years, but if it was innate, well, no one on Parliament's side had even thought of a world without a king, except maybe Henry Martin. Maybe there could have been the reasonable deal everybody had wanted from the start. St John and Vane could have got together with Hyde, a deal could have been done. We're all reasonable people here. I mean, maybe, maybe not. But I put it to you, that Canworth's actions, noble and pure-spirited though they were, may not have been for the greater good. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm not sure Dan, a firm royalist, would agree. I haven't put it to him in quite this way. Anyway, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Back then to my mate Pot. He has these local archaeological reports, one of which shows the finds of musket balls going through what is now a farmyard. It is a fascinating document. So there's this rectangle of dense finds of musket balls, and then there's a long gap, 
just little bits here and there. And then there's another rectangle of dense finds of musket balls. It is practical evidence of at least one part of the Royal Army fighting an ordered retreat, stopping, firing, retreating, stopping, firing, retreating. We know that Rupert tried to reform a defence further back at Moot Hill, but he fails. There are also reports of Rupert's own foot regiments, the Bluecoats. They stood on Dust Hill and refused to break. Fairfax turned to his cavalry captain, Charles Doyley. Seeing a body of the king's foot stand and not at all broke, he asked Doyley if he had charged that body, who answered that he had twice charged them, but they could not break them. The bluecoats, like Newcastle's white coats at Marston, stood firm as long as inhumanly possible. They were like a wall of brass, wrote Whitlock. It is conceived that a great part of them were Irish, and chose to die in the field rather than be hanged. The battle was over, apart from the full horror, the worst of it. Here we are in repulsive rather than right territory. When a contingent of soldiers reached the Royalist baggage train, the worst parliamentary atrocity of the war occurred when about a 100 women were killed or had their faces slashed by the zealots, as either prostitutes or Welsh women mistaken as Irish. In all probability, they were simply the partners of the men fighting, the soldiers. The new model acquires a reputation for orderliness, restraint on local populations and all that sort of thing, but not here. Cromwell, meanwhile, had ordered his horse not to stop for loot, which they bitterly resented, by the way, but it led to 50 royalist troopers being caught in Marston Trussell Churchyard, Pudding End, it's called, because they take the wrong turn and rather than taking the road, they go into this Pudding End field and they are can't get out. They are killed to a man and dumped in a pit, which has probably been excavated. It's still called Slaughterfield. And we went there and we looked at the place by the beautiful Ironstone Church. Never get tired of those churches. Dan, however, had better information and cast considerable shade on the idea, but we all agreed it was a great story anyway and locally firmly believed, so thought, what the heck, we'll stick with that. Such is the way quality history is written. As always, the majority of deaths occurred in the flight and therefore they were mainly royalists, but actually the numbers aren't very high. Fairfax probably lost 150, Charles had 1,000 killed. But Charles lost most of his infantry. 4,000 were captured and Dan made the point that these were irreplaceable. These were the veterans that would take long months of campaigning to reform, and he didn't have long months without an army. And he lost all his artillery, and, 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 he lost all his secret files, which included a big stash of letters in a box. Note bene. Naseby was over. It was not immediately clear what the outcome would be, but a few centuries later, Thomas Babington Macaulay would visit Naseby in his gig and write all about it. He wrote a poem, which isn't great, to be fair, but Babbers was clear that Naseby was a thing with a capital T. And the kings of earth in fear shall shudder when they hear what the hand of God had wrought for the houses and the word. We'll hear about the fallout and the King's Cabinet opened next time here on the History of England and find out what God hath wrought and all of that. Before we go, I promised a word of the week. Haven't had one for quite a while. So, I looked up furs 
because I was intrigued by it, apparently being the same word as the one I'd always used, gorse. When I was starting out on the life of commerce 35 years ago, I took my first job in Maidenhead and north of Pinkney's Green, where I stayed, there was a lot of heathland at the top of Winter's Hill and there were places called Furs Platt. Never worried about it because I was too busy trying to fiddle my rep's expenses, but I do remember it now. Turns out that gorse and furs are exactly the same thing, both Germanic, both present in Old English. Alfred translated Boetius, for example, Whoever would sow fertile land must first pluck up the thorns and furs. Someone then told me that gorse and furs were the only exact synonyms in English. They mean exactly the same thing and there are no others. Is that true? Are they? Aren't there? The bloke used the example of sim, small and little. Not exact synonyms because they have a slightly different flavour of meaning. I think he's wrong though. Because I think that it's regional, that furs is mainly southern and southwestern England. And I use gorse because my folks come from north of the Humber. So... When you're using the word, you're expressing regional identity in your choice, and they're not exact synonyms. And then there's win. Fairfax uses the word win for thorn bushes at Marston Moor. So that also is possibly an alternative for furs and gorse, though it's one that's more general, so it could be blackthorn, for example. Then I got all maudlin about how much more vital the countryside used to be with all this gorse around the place, as I said earlier, and Dartford warblers fluttering around, though wildly less productive, of course. Jan on Facebook then quoted Ruth Goodman, who wrote that gorse was maintained as a source of domestic fuel. It was cut back frequently and then it regrew, which extends the life of plants substantially, as with many trees, like oak, of course. But when coal came along... Gorse lost this value, and so they were grubbed up or left to die. Then I got all folksy and gathered some folklore, which I'm not going to bore you with, except that there does seem to be a connection between furs and fuzz, as in, what's that fuzz on your chin, young lad? And also the fact that gorse flower rather randomly throughout the year, and this has led to a happy folk saying, when gorse is out of blossom, kissing's out of fashion. Obviously, the conclusion is that since gorse is always in blossom, kissing is never out of fashion, which seems like a good idea. Anyway, I think that's enough warbling. You are probably sick and tired of this episode now. So, the king's cause has hit a train. Who's laughing at the new noddle now, eh, Rupert? Can Charles recover from this one? There is still George down in the southwest, and maybe Digby has another good idea. Find out next week, brave fellow travellers here at the History of England. And in the meantime, good luck, thanks for listening, and may the week ahead be full of glory. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.